I got to warn you. You're doomed to stay. Go. Go. I think we just met Ralph. God, what's next? Welcome to the Startup One Discovery. Yes, it's the exciting reboot and return of the Star Dog podcast after only three and a half years between episodes. Because you, the fan, demanded it. That's right, the other one person other than me that still subscribes to the feed, whoever you are. Well done, brave warrior. Your faith has been been returned, repaid in full. It's like you thought there would never be a third Ghostbusters film. There was. You the thought there would never be a sequel to Blade Runner. Even though well, there was in the 90s in the form of three very bad books. And yet, Blade Runner 2 now exists in cinemas. Well, that's that's would never return. Live action He-Man. Oh wait, that's still not happening. <laughs> that's still not happened. Let's get some introduction out of the way because who knows, we might maybe get some new listeners. <laughs> you mean an extra listener? Uh, so, Two of them. Yeah, so I'm Andy. Uh, my name is Ralph. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with our previous endeavours, we basically spent several years looking at random items of pop culture ephemera that were either neglected, overlooked, or just avoided at all costs by saner and wiser people. Also known as cat. Uh, so occasionally, in a sort of brave way of trying to boast of listeners, something contemporary and modern and popular, but only occasionally. Yeah. We don't like to pander too much. Exactly. That's why we've got an episode of you with exciting new Star Trek show Discovery. Yes. Riding on those coattails. What are we back with? Well... Many things. More of the same with a shiny lick of paint and in no way inspired by Mar- Marvel's incessant reboots of its properties there. See? Bit of a topical reference there. Do you like a topical reference? Yeah. So over the course of the next... However long this uh, second <laughs> volume of Stardub lasts, yeah, we'll treat you to some uh, random discussions of books, comics... Whatever, yep. whatever basically takes our fancy, and also because we're now back, I'm sure whatever items of absolute terror that a uh, friend of the show, Philip Ayers, uh, will send to us, no doubt. So, I think Neon Nums are on the table again, Burns. Neon Num, for those who don't know, is the worst character in Star Wars. But we'll come back to that in a future episode. That is a little teaser. A little I, teaser for you. I, I can guarantee you we'll be back to Neon Num. At some point. That's the intro out of the way. On to the first section of the podcast. Can you begin? What is our first item on the table? We're going to be discussing My Busy Books. What is My Busy Books? It's a fine range of children's literature. I use it in the loosest term because you'll find out why in a very brief moment. But mm-hmm. it does come with... It's a storybook yes. with 12 figurines and a playmat. Now, this is, this is part of a series of, of big, chunky books that you'll see... Uh, usually in supermarkets, you don't tend to see them in bookshops. Uh, they're named the children. They're quite thick. They sound they sound like that, so you can really you really get the feel of a box. And generally, they're tied into uh, licensed properties, basically. So you won't find original characters. You'll find something like DC or Transformers My, or Marvel or My Little Pony, My Little Pony, or I don't know things that live under the sea. Who can say? Rather shockingly, we've decided to focus on the uh, Transformers, My Busy Books. Now, on the back there, if you turn to the back so that people can see on audio, um, it was produced in assistance with whom? 
Well, the government of Canada. Government of Canada. Canada's a fine land. It's given us many fine things and it's helped to contribute towards literacy. Now, so basically, so you get this box, even though it's called My, My Busy Books, it's a box and it's a three-in-one product. For it has, in the box, if you open it up inside, yep. on the left-hand side, there are some cardboard pages which comprise the exciting storybook. More of that in a couple of moments. What else do you, what's, okay, so that's, that's phase one yeah. of the busy book. What's phase two? Phase two is a plastic container that you can peel apart because it's just cellotaped in, as you can hear. Got a couple of holes in it. It contains a playmat. Mm-hmm. With okay. a, yeah. it's a plasticky coated plastic paper. material, yeah. It's quite large. You'd be surprised how large it is. It's large enough to cover basically a man. Yeah, it's got a city scene on one side and nothing That's on the other. Yes, it's all on one side. So basically what they've done is they've they split it in half. Uh, so on this enormous playmat here, which is so enormous we're still unfolding it. That's how big it is. I hope you can visualise this in audio. If you've seen the map yes. scene from Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, it's you've kind of got like that. Except like that, but not as good. And we're not in a van. Okay, so rather than have like a straight line across the middle to show the two scenes, you've got this kind of jagged line down the middle. So you're kind of top and sort of part of the left is what could be the inside of a spaceship. Or all about headquarters. All about headquarters. And in there you've got uh, some doors. Some rooms. Some some rooms which you can't really see far into. You've got like a road. Yep. Yeah, you've got a road there. Some big gantries. Uh, there's not a lot happening really. Meanwhile, in the bottom we have a trashed city. It's, it's, it's fair been there. Uh, it's, it's proper banjaxed. It's probably going to be kicked in. There's, there's holes in the ground and there's bits of wood. There's some broken glass. But if you go up to the top end of the street, it's fine. everything else is untouched. It's all good. It's all good. So that's where so. you go. So this is your play map, right? And it's but, absolutely enormous. But, I mean, it covers from the top of my head down to my knees. When he's sitting down, I should When I'm it. sitting down. Okay, that's how big this is. So why do I have a play map? Well, the back of the box tells you. Yeah, but I can't do it because I've opened the thing. Do you know what? Yes, you can. There you go. But it's got a play map because it also yeah. comes with... Two figurine, uh, 12 figurines, sorry, and you can bring the characters to life and ignite your child's imagination. Excellent. So what are the figurines? Figurines are, there are six robots mm-hmm. and six vehicles. Right. We have, in no particular order, although it does appear to be an order of pumpness, we've got Bumblebee, sort of halfway house between the movie and his classic Volkswagen. Who is mode. Bumblebee? Bumblebee is, oh, spoilers, we'll cover the story in a moment. All right, okay, oh, that's, oof, oof, okay. Rookie mistake there. Anyway, he's a yellow robot man. Then you've got uh, Hot Rod. Who's a red robot man. Yep. Yep. He's also one of the goodies, or am I giving the plot away? No, you can, I'll, I'll Okay, they, these are the goodies, right? Then you've there got, then you've got Soundwave. He's a baddie. Proper wrong He's a baddie. Then you've got Starscream. Starscream, who's also particularly evil. He's got very, very large red chest, which is unfortunate. Then you've got Megatron. The mighty Megatron, no less. And, un- rather unsurprisingly for our Transformers range, oh look, Optimus Prime. Who's Optimus Prime? He is the uh, leader of the Robocopters, I believe. And we'll find out more in the exciting story. We will. And that's only six. You. But these are supposed to transform. How do they transform? Because you've got six figures of them in their vehicle mode. Oh. So you can transform them using the power of your own imagination and sound effects. So you can have, and this is Gaudio Gold here, I've got Optimus Prime in one hand. Yes. I put the truck in front of it. Huh? <gasps> it's turned into a truck. And it's turned into a robot. That's amazing. And you can do that with the rest of five. What, now, what will they think of next? On a more serious note, they're actually quite well done for what they, they are. They are, actually. Um, they are. There, there have been various uh, blind bag ranges of Transformers. There was Tiny Titans that ran for six series, which were kind of like 
Not quite super deformed, but sort of cutesy versions of the robots. Somewhere between a TF animated style and a more traditional style. And they followed on from uh, Robot Heroes. Yep. The late elementary Robot Heroes. And more recently you've had Tiny Turbo Changers, which which are robots made of rubber rather than plastic, and they have... They transform. But there's more paint apps on these than either of the Tiny Titans or the Tiny Turbochargers. Sculpting's not too bad either. There is is even uh, tampographs of faction symbols on the Transformers. Very, very small ones. Yes. Very small. But... Tiny-whiny. So, now as as people know, we here uh, do like, well, we enjoy Transformers toys. It's always been the Transformers fiction that's really been the big draw for us. Even as children. Yes. It was always, for me, comic then cartoon. Yeah. But we now have a storybook. Now what we're going to do now is, spoilers, we're going to read out the entire storybook to you. Are you sitting comfortably, children? First page. Optimus Prime, the leader of the Autobots, the finest warrior ever produced by Cybertron. He defends the right to freedom at home and now on Earth. Bumblebee is Optimus Prime's loyal scout and looks up to him as a mentor. Small in stature, what he may may lack in strength, Bumblebee makes up for enthusiasm and speed. His alt mode is a yellow car. Optimus Prime's alt mode is a semi-truck. And so it is, I'm holding it up right now. That's true. So, know. on to the next double spread of the story. Once honoured across Cybertron, Megatron was a respected and fearless warrior until he was corrupted by power. Now this selfish menace wants to conquer everything, including Optimus Prime. Megatron believes there can be only one victor, and he's determined to be it. His alt mode is a tank. That's right, tank. It's better than a gun. Get over it. I prefer the gun. It's not tank. That's better. Again, we'll go on to the scale and practicalities of it. It doesn't work. Tank all the way. Next page. Starscream may be Megatron's second in command, but his ambition drives him to want, and in brackets, and actively seek more. more. Meanwhile, fellow Decepticon Soundwave doesn't really care about what is right or wrong. He obsessively gathers information to ensure he comes out on top. Starscream's alt mode is a jet and Soundwave's alt mode is a surveillance vehicle and it does kind of have the look of a very militarised TV detector van if you believe that the TV licence detector vans ever existed what do you mean they don't? they've got databases with name and addresses it's not difficult to find out who doesn't have a TV licence do they not have the vans anymore? they never really had vans what? yes they did they had the TV vans the TV detector vans they had to be aerial on top and they came around looking for people and people will sit inside with headphones by the ears. I'm sure there were adverts for TV yeah, detector vans. No, I know the, the adverts are, but the vans didn't really do much. They, they, they detected the television you signal. A, you, that's, a signal the van. That's, that's a signal that's broadcast. You just have to have an antenna that happens to just pick up a signal. It doesn't pull it in through magic. Wait a minute. No, hang on a second. Just hang on. Are you trying to tell me the TV detector vans don't exist? That it was all a big pile of nonsense. No, no, they no, no, no. They had they had mm. the vans. They had the vans, and then the vans they used to kind of go around the streets, and they, they could tell in that building somebody was getting TV signals. <laughs> <laughs> that's how they come in. That's how they. That's how they know you come and knock on your door. No, here's a that's list. Of I got told as a child. Yes, so did I, but. On further and even the most briefest cursory examination would say, that's an awful lot of technology that can be eliminated by just looking at a list of names and addresses. But well, hang on a sec. Of people in the country who are on, for example, registered electoral roll or benefits but against they, those who've already paid for a, a TV licence. They don't have the van, and then when they detect the signals, they check against the database to see if that signal corresponds to somebody that's paid for it. <laughs> Is that not what they do? 
Do you mean there's no vans? Why did they have vans in the adverts? To make people worried. And frightened. I thought there were I thought there were vans never been it but it, no, they have vans. I know they have vans because when I was at university and I stayed at Halls of Residence in second year, they mentioned about how the TV license worked and they said that because the vans came up and checked on campus. Yeah. That's what they told yes, us. Yes, but the the vans just had a dude that went at the door and went, Your TV license, mate. No, I had the area on to I saw I'm sure I saw one. It was like do you remember um uh, Doctor Who? Um, I was, I've been waiting since I mentioned this for you to cite <laughs> no. Remembrance of the Daleks this <laughs> episode one there's a television story of Doctor Who called Remembrance of the Daleks which has got a van in it which is what the TV detector vans were right okay Doctor Who as, as has been established is a work of fiction yes but it was on a cheap budget so I just assumed they used a real TV detector van for that scene you mean a vintage van that was only available in the 60s you know yeah. I don't understand vehicles they all look the same how, did, yeah. how was I supposed to know no sorry to shatter your illusions there so there's no vans there are vans but they don't have the capability to detect that so they told people just guys with clipboards and why lists why don't they just have a car then vans are more threatening and people would expect you to have that kind of level of surveillance equipment in a van look at any TV spy drama Look at now, you, the amount of technology you've got in your mobile you phone. You just stay there a second, I'm going to come right back. You keep reading the story. Right, so while Barnes is away, I'll go on the next double page spread of the story. So, it's now Hot Rod. And overly confident, Hot Rod really doesn't like to take advice from wiser and more experienced Transformers. This headstrong and hot-headed Autobot would rather take care of things himself instead of relying on others to do it for him, even when it's probably not the best idea. His alt mode is a race car. Downgraded, used to be a futuristic race car. So, the next is a double page spread which says Optimus Prime, Bumblebee and all the Autobots on Earth work together to defend humans and bots alike as robots in disguise. They protect Earth from the ongoing threat of Megatron and his Decepticons. Luckily Optimus has a loyal and devoted team. This, that's the storybook. Mm-hmm. It's not really a storybook. I'm just looking up TV detectors. There's not really a story here. On the internet. It's lovingly illustrated. It's from, you'll have seen some of the designs on It's kind of a I say Bumblebee's a hybrid of the IDW uh, version plus enough nods to his classic Volkswagen Beetle styling. Prime's somewhere between current one and E.J. Sue's designs with a little bit of big convoy in the head. That's quite nice. Megatron looks Okay, I've looked at the internet, right? And it says here there's even a picture. Let's look at Wikipedia. TV detector vans are vans which, according to the BBC, contain equipment which detect the presence of television sets in use. And look, it's got the little aerial sticking out. Uh, there you go. TV detector van. They're real. According to the BBC. Why would... Look, look. They exist. So therefore, Soundwave, the figurine, turns into a TV detector van. Which would make sense, and the reason why it makes sense is because the character of Soundwave, the evil Decepticon, monitors... Um, radio waves and so on because he turns into a tape deck so clearly we're talking it's a TV detector van you'll be able to detect frequencies of broadcast transmissions yeah. shite you'll have to edit that out Trump. no swearing alright but I disagree it's nonsense and any other documentation doesn't actually mention anything of using it I think you'll find I'm looking up the telegraph now oh the Torygraph <laughs> but, okay. but then it just happens to be on the Google search okay According to them, on the 6th of August 2016, um, BBC vans will fan out across the country, capturing information to sniff out those who have not paid the licence fee. The 
Corporations will be given legal dispensation to use new technology, which is typically only available to crime-fighting agencies. You mean databases? I'm pretty sure BBC's got one of them. And look, there's a picture of one in advance. Yes, and you'll tellingly look and see that said fan has some seats and hee-haw technology. That's because this is... Right, but the technology's smaller now. Computers used to take up whole rooms and yeah. now they, they can fit in your pocket. That's pesh. It's not uh, nonsense. Uh, anyway, I've no. disproved it. No. Anyway, so that this is the busy books thing. It's only six of your finest pounds from supermarkets. I recommend, if you want little mini figures that are quite nice, pick it up. Cause it's, and for those of you who have kids of, a, of the ages, themed up according to the book, I think it's worth a go. Splendid. So, it's well worth picking up, I would say. I, I would say so. And educational, too, as we've just found out. Through that thrilling story. No, the TV detector van nonsense. Exactly. No. Nonsense. Nonsense because you don't believe it's real. Okay, so it's educational. So very good. And so far, we believe they've sold two copies of this in the UK, so we need to get the numbers up. Uh, true, because quite frankly, it's just been us, to our knowledge. So, uh, those of you with, with children... Do your duty. Those of you who children, just buy any of its Transformers and you've bought worse in the past, for God's sake. We've talked from licensing publishing. Mm-hmm. From, so we're going to go from one extreme to the other. So this is charitably a licensed cash cow, quick cash in the busy books. There's, well, there's some work put in. Mm-hmm. It's not a lot. So we're going to look to the other end of the written license spectrum. Oh, we've got another new regular feature. Yeah. Okay. They're all new regulars. This, <laughs> <is the first laughs> yeah. this will be a monthly feature, so not every episode. God. Okay. So this episode is called Ralph Reed Star Trek. Now, we're going to preface this for a little bit. Now, licensed fiction has been around probably since this is probably, probably. the inception of it, yeah, this particular so. property. However, it does tend to vary depending on the property, publisher, and creatives involved. Yes. Uh, the one that I'd say most prominent for for me that would be Doctor Who books indeed but this is sort of the granddaddy of them all the the big bear in the room that's still running I speak of Star Trek so yeah so basically the idea of licensed books is you have what we like to call real books and real books is when an author he or she has been sitting around and thought of an idea and written an exciting narrative about it it's been published it's based on nothing other than the ideas in their own head or possibly from mythology or old tale, something like that. Yeah. A license book is different. A license book specifically is usually based on either like a television or movie property. Sometimes based on comics or other books as well, but typically... Or computer games now as well. Or computer games now as well, actually. And sort of their kind of heyday was kind of like, like pre-home video and uh, sort of pre-internet as well, where basically if you enjoyed the film series or television show... And what would typically happen is, well, it was off air, you had no way of getting new adventures, or uh, episodes like Doctor Who, for instance, 60s, would be shown once and then deleted, never to be actually literally shown again, um, or something would be cancelled and go away. So often it was your fix to get something that didn't exist anymore, or to get your fix in between. Generally speaking, licensed fiction uh, usually has to take the toys out at the start of the book and put them away again at the end of the book. They can't really make any lasting changes. Where that sort of changed was really... Depending on where you are in the UK and the US, of two properties. In the UK, you've mentioned Doctor Who. 
because Doctor Who books existed for long as the original show was on air, and then when the show went off air in 1989, a couple of years later, a publisher called Virgin Publishing uh, decided they would do ongoing fiction based on Doctor Who because the TV show was dead, never coming back. And so, although very much of its time in terms of quality, it was different from other licensed books, as in if you want the official continuation, this is how you got it, you had to read the books. Yes, there were comics, but for some reason, just the way it worked out, the books is where you went if you wanted to know what happened next. What was different was in the US, which Andy can talk about, which was Star Wars. Yes, uh, so Star Wars came, came back into big big way in 1991 with the Timothy Zahn trilogy, Air of the Empire, uh, which spawned, at that point, Star Wars Expanded Universe had been some tie-in novels, which you can go back to Splinter and the Mind's Eye in 78, which is kind of the first sequel to Star Wars and contradicts a lot of Empire, but that's not. With written by the granddaddy of uh, licensed tie-ins, ADF, Alan Dean Foster. Uh, but Star Wars had a resurgence and then had a big, massive expanded universe where they went on and did everything that happened. And it did follow some ongoing narrative that tied in. There was some acrobatics occasionally to make things tie in. And they filled in the gaps between the films as well. Star Wars kind of had carried on its way because at that point there was never going to be any other films despite George saying there was going to be six, there was nine, there was going to be six, there would be nine. There was no other films, yeah, exactly. But then another property had had... Was start, certain parts of it were starting to come to an end around about this time as well, which is as well Star, Trek. Star Trek. So, Star Trek novels uh, started off in the, the early 1970s, if I remember correctly, with books such as Spot Must Die! Exclamation mark by James Blish, which was, was new adventures to tie into the series because the series was dead as a dodo and it was never going to come back. Uh, but it was heavily popular in syndication in the States and in showings around the world. And mixed in with that, you had what were called the Star Trek Logs by Alan Dean Foster, which were novelizations of the original series episodes, and also the animated episodes. Which was a direct continuation, folks. Indeed, to bring it into line. And again, uh, it was often a way to get the full adventure, and had certain benefits, particularly for uh, US readers, uh, because when Star Trek went into syndication, at that time, episodes were 50 minutes long. But typically, when they were re-shown, they would have five, sometimes up to ten minutes, cut out to make room for additional adverts. So often fans there couldn't get the full adventures until the video cassettes of the 80s or by reading novelizations. So, fast forward to the early 2000s. What happened in 2005, Andy? Uh, Star Trek, as an ongoing concern, finally ended. Yep, it died. A combination of Enterprise not really catching fire and at all, really, from, what the, from the start. Also, with the the network it was on being disappeared right out from under it. UPN uh, itself, which uh, Enterprise was shown on, vanished a year later. So, by this point, there was one Star Trek show left, which was called initially Enterprise until it changed its name to Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, third episode of the third season, although repeats now call every episode Star Trek Enterprise, and that's a proper nerd point for you. Haha. <laughs> so anyway, during this time, Star Trek books, particularly in the sort of 80s, were actually quite big sellers. Uh, they pumped out several a month. You also had hardcovers, and they actually sold particularly well to get onto things like New York Times bestseller lists and things like that. Was it not a combination of adaption of episodes and books fitting sideways around? No, by that point, no, because the only episodes that were really novelised were the original series and occasional special episodes of the TV show. So things like pilot episodes or big two-parts. So you would have things like... The episode where Scotty came back in TNG was novelised, uh, Spock to part was novelised, but for the most part, 
the vast majority of time books were original. Some of them had a bit more cash value than others. Um, Jerry Taylor, uh, which is one of the executive producers, wrote a book called Star Trek Voyager Mosaic, uh, which was a lot of the backstory for Captain Janeway, the main character in the show, which was itself adopted into the canon of the show because Jerry Taylor at one point wanted to run the show. So some of them had a kind of like a semi quasi-official status, but generally speaking, they were self-contained adventures. Um, but they added a lot to the university, changed the Romulans and the Klingons a lot, and some of that was influential in the TV show. But generally speaking, they didn't count for toffee. Other than entertainment. So, around about 2005, by this point, the novels had long since actually passed their peak in terms of sales. And um, what didn't help was that prior to that, or the editor at the time decided that every novel now had to be split across three or four books and tied into every single other Star Trek show, which meant it lost some of this audience, and even just generally Star Trek had, had passed its peak. Shared universes do not always work. Take no Hasbro. Indeed. So, about a couple of years after Enterprise went off the air, uh, people running the Star Trek novels at Pocket Books, which is the publisher in the US that puts them out, uh, pretty much came to the conclusion that Star Trek, as an ongoing concern, was indeed dead. And basically, they could do whatever they wanted with the novels. So they just gave up doing ties and just thought, saw that we're going to do ongoing narratives that continue the stories of the 22nd century versions, the 23rd century, and most significantly, the 24th century past the movie Star Trek Nemesis. And in that way, they trucked on now for about over a decade. Um, but as I said, they are now just down to one novel a month. So generally, each year you get one Voyager novel, one Enterprise novel, and then the other 10 slots are split between original series, which usually gets three or four slots. And TNG and DS9 are sort of intermixed, as the characters all kind of move around. So this brings us to Ralph because Andy has an opinion about Star Trek tie-in fiction, which you will now share. Most of it is abjectly, as again, I'm an X-Men fan, so there's quite a time to it, is that X-Men in the 90s vanished up its own backside in terms of continuity to the point that it was impenetrable to a casual reader. Star Trek novelizations, or Star Trek novels are pretty much in that place at the moment. There are the odd ones that Ralph says, read these are actually genuinely good. He has to preface this with genuinely good, not Star Trek good, because his definition of a good Star Trek book is vastly more favourable to the, the authors and the quality of the material than I would be. Hence the David Mack Borg trilogy, which actually does something interesting with the Borg and takes them off the table entirely at the end of it. Indeed. And also, should be the last time Picard's in charge of a starship, because he's mental. <laughs> he, he's not very well, because he hears the Borg voices a lot. Okay. But anyway, so uh, Ralph will, is, will occasionally post updates on what books he's reading. That's true, because what I found out was that my chums really like to know what's happening in the Star Trek universe. Yes, strangely, don't want to read the books themselves. It, it's, it's like getting... Brown's like a buffer for the cack. So it basically just... He can give me the salient points so I can have a okay. passing interest. So this is the feature where I update people as to what's happening in the world of Star Trek. So this month's novel was Star Trek Enterprise Rise of the Federation Book 5, I think it is. Well, it doesn't say Book 5 on it, but it's been gone about five years. Patterns of Interference by Christopher L. Bennett. Now, Christopher L. Bennett is the writer who gave the world the Borgosaurus. That's right. It was, on, it was the Star Trek novella. Was that novella. one of the time travel ones? It was, it was a, yes, because there's a series called Department of Temporal Investigations, Chum, uh, in which um, those two characters who were in that one DS9 episode for about two minutes one time run a whole department, you see, and investigate the timeline across all of the Star Trek adventures, and they end up going into the far future where there's a T-Rex, okay? And the T-Rex has got, gets Borg stuff and plants into it, so it becomes known as the Borgosaurus. 
I, I think the silence there speaks volumes. And uh, okay, so um, so anyway, the back cover blurb is the time has come to act. Following the destructive consequences of the Ware crisis, Admiral Jonathan Archer and Section Thirty One Agent Trip Tucker now both attempt to change their institutions to prevent further tragedies. Archer pushes for a Starfleet directive of non-interference, but he faces unexpected opposition from allies within the fleet. An unwelcome support from adversaries who wish to drive the Federation into complete isolationism. Meanwhile, Tucker plays a dangerous game against the corrupt leaders of the clandestine Section 31, hoping to bring down their conspiracy once and for all. But is he willing to jeopardise Archer's efforts and perhaps the fate of an entire world in order to win? Right, before Ralph reads, let's get you up to speed here, because if you, if you watch Star Trek Enterprise, you'll have one question there. Trip, he's dead. How? Well, what actually happened to Trip, as you see, didn't actually die. I kind of got that from the back cover okay. book. You need to tell he, us how he, he didn't he die. He faked his own death because he was recruited by Section 31. The scamps. Now, you might think, how can Section 31 exist? 200 years before they become a bit of a nuisance in Deep Space Nine. Because they said in Deep Space Nine they existed around the birth of Fed, they've always been there. That's correct. Now, in the show Enterprise, they explain that because there's an article of the Federation which says such and such, such and such, Article 31. However, the books have explained it far more clearly. Would you like me to tell you? Go for it. Okay, right. So, do you know how in uh, the 20th century you had things like Project Blue Book and so on, which yes. were. Um, US sort of army um, and government and Air Force investigations into to investigate UFOs right well in the Star Trek universe it turns out that they all eventually sort of merged and amalgamated okay and then what happened is that when they merged and amalgamated they went down to the guy who run them who had adventures with the Vulcan chap who was left on Earth in the 20th century he was in that one Enterprise episode where T'Pol went back in time and met him because okay? he got mixed up with Gary Seven and Gary Seven as secretary for the original series episode Assignment Earth and all the agents of the Aegis that Gary Seven works for Okay, so they have all these kind of adventures which tie in which actually tie into every single televised Star Trek time travel episode Right, now we're going to pause here. Remember the bit I said about how I was an X-Men fan in the 90s, how it disappeared up its own backside in terms of continuity, and said that Star Trek books had done exactly the same? The prosecution rests. So anyway, so Project <laughs> Blue Book and all that, they eventually merge, and one guy runs it, and then at the end of one of the novels, you find he goes to the Pentagon, right? So he goes down this big elevator, down into the like bowels of the earth, and down there he oh, goes. Oh, the X-Files are? No, that's an entirely different building. So he goes all the way down the Pentagon in the lift, and he goes to a corridor, and that's where he's so not going to be. This. No, and the corridor is called like level five, whatever section thirty-one. So it's not where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's not where the Ark of the Covenant is. So section thirty-one actually comes from the Pentagon in the twentieth and twentieth century. Like all bad things. Okay, so it actually predates the Federation itself. So when it actually gets sort of like reformed in early Federation times, so because this is actually before the Federation, this was stuff that exists. Um, they, they use the Section 31 thing. Now, so what happened anyway? So Trip Tucker, the engineer from Star Trek Enterprise, faked his own death so he could join Section 31 because Section 31 had tried to recruit Malcolm Reed, the English Armory officer. Also from Desmond's. Also from Desmond's and uh, later went on to star in Species 4, The Awakening. Recruited, to couldn't recruit him to be Section 31, so recruited Trip. Now, for 10 years in the novels, no one knew Trip was alive, okay? Other than T'Pol which was the Vulcan chick 
uh, first officer on Enterprise, right? Because what happened is that they had like this special bond across space. So no matter where they were in the galaxy, they could they could sense each other with their minds. Uh, well, Discovery has that. Uh, mild spoilers if you've not seen the first two episodes of Discovery. Yeah, yeah, that that now has precedent. But I like to say the books did that first, okay? Anyway, so that goes for the so Archer and all that. They don't know. So why does he decide to join Section Thirty One? Okay, well what happens is that um, he helps out with the Romulan War, but as another pseudonym, okay. So, but he still can't like directly interact with, and as time goes on, and you get so like really sad and tragic and angst and stuff, and he thinks, oh, I need to get rid of Section Thirty One. So, in Book One of Rise of the Federation, what he does is he hides on board NX One Enterprise, which is in the museum, and kind of like hopes that Archer will turn up one day for to have a look, and he steps out the shadows. He does this a lot actually in the books. He tends to go on like old Enterprise ships and just step out the shadows and go, I'm alive! But he why, wears a black suit. But why does he join them in the first place? Well, they, they made him because he was dead, you see. But you said he faked his own death. Well, they helped him fake his own death as a way to recruit an agent because they couldn't get Malcolm Reed, so they thought they'd get Chip Tucker, who conveniently was kind of pronounced to be dead at the time. So they could take him and no one would suspect he was an agent because he's meant to be dead okay okay now this 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 also ties into do you remember in the original series Star Trek episode Requiem from Methuselah where you had the immortal being known as Flint who apparently had been every famous man in all through Earth history yes okay well okay here's the thing did you know that he's behind most of all the events that happened in all the Star Trek shows because it was him that helped um, Soong's ancestor in Enterprise developed the stuff for the augments then helps them develop technology which eventually leads to cybernetics which leads to data and various other things so so he, he himself like like always a kind of a recluse wants to help humanity right. so he's sort of helping Trip reclaim his humanity to stop Section 31 but why wouldn't like Soong when he was arrested gas him up because he was not a nice character because Alex Soong not not, uh, not Brent Spiner an old man makeup. Well, because, because Flint the Immortal, who has many names, can never be found, you see. Ooh. And also, this is, you forget, it's a hundred years before Starfleet finds out that it exists in the original series episode. Sounds like it. But even then, not just that, that once Soong had been arrested, he would said, yeah, I was helped by this guy. Here's a description of him. And then... Oh look, a hundred years later when he appears, Spock would do that, that reason. No, no, because he, this, he, he, needs, he, needs, he needs the immortal man to help him develop cybernetics. Otherwise he won't get data, you're not paying attention. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, so the plot of Rise of the Federation is that, as the title implies, we are now moving from the Coalition of Planets phase, which is what you get to at the end of the Enterprise TV show, to the United Federation of Planets, which is kind of like what runs the show behind Starfleet and everything in, in Star Trek. Starfleet runs everything. Okay. Um, so it turns out that there's a major, the major force against the Federation forming are three sexy Orion women using their special Phenomon powers. Okay, because they're in league with an evil dictator who rules a planet of lizards who was mentioned once in an offhand comment in one of the 1970s animated episodes. Have you left me so far? So so basically what some women are in, are in the way of democracy in the way of democracy. This is sounding a little bit like fat like a wet dream book for Trump. Well, it's funny you would say that because the the chap that the the, the team up with to try and stop the federation forming um, and the first few books is just written as a kind of like an evil, evil chap. Very, very evil, you know, does, not very good, doesn't do anything. In the fifth book, this one here, he basically turns into Space Trump because he starts doing like fake news broadcasts and so on and it gets a wee bit more 
pointing them on the nose so there's your here's your commentary is it as chap wrote all five of those books he has wrote all five of those books so basically he's just seen eventually he's like oh Trump I'll make it topical and a bit of satire a bit so but anyway so to cut a long story short um, you've the, not really this I have <laughs> this is when it gets to the point where Trip uh, now Admiral Archer knows he's alive and Malcolm Reed knows he's alive uh, I don't think anyone else knows he's alive so he, he just keeps stepping in and out the shadows so in this book he meets them on board another enterprise which predates the NX-01 don't give me that look is there a missing enterprise? there, there were other enterprises before the NX-01 before there was Starfleet like the first shot of these space missions and things like that okay. they were conveniently they're not all, mentioned they're all with a big museum there was conveniently never mentioned anywhere never mentioned anywhere no anyway so it's, it's a big complicated plot and he has to save the day but but those of us who read Star Trek every month will know hang on a second he can't stop section 31 not even those of us who read Star Trek every month those of us who watched Deep Space Nine where what is uh, what's his name Bill Sadler whatever his name oh uh, the Jack pack that he led because he was called Jack and they're yeah. all mad but him oh they were dealt with in a previous book because did you know that Section 31 tried to invade uh, the Middle Universe to take over this technology <sighs> right so so yes uh, where was it yeah so we know that he can't defeat Section 31 first of all because Section 31 was defeated once and for all two months ago in the 24th century series of books Right, which also had an ongoing Section 31 plotline. So what you're saying is they've had concurrent Section 31 plotlines in their novels. That have both been running for several years, yes. But they're in Who? two different centuries, Chum. Who's editing these books? Nice people, good people. No, they, they, someone put, needs to put the word on. It's like, I don't mind them having an ongoing section, uh, an ongoing narrative threat at the back. It, it helps in, in long-running fiction. It does. It can also go horribly wrong. Star, Star Wars and the, the Yuuzhan Vong for example in the New Jedi Order Vector Prime nonsense where Chewbacca dies after a planet gets dropped on his head but he's not dead anymore because that's been un- exactly un- some, some things that the uh, Force Awakens sort of got away with weren't all bad yeah but yes. yeah two concurrent long running plays involving the same shadowy organisation with yeah. the same motives it's not really a winner for well because in the 24th century strand it had this big teaser as to who is control with a capital C because control was what apparently been running section 31 and no one knew who he or she was but it turned out that actually because it was uh, Dr Bashir from Deep Space Nine uh, also was secretly an agent of section 31 as well and he was trying to bring it down from the inside see the parallels okay um, so he found out that control in fact was an AI which had existed for over 200 years and predated everything. And apparently behind the scenes was every single piece of software and hardware ever in any Starfleet or Federation equipment, vessel house, since before the NX-01. Which and influenced everything. Which makes every Borg story ring false, if you look at that. Well, actually, they get the, the right round that. No, you mean they, they hand wave furiously? No, no, because they have bits where the AI kind of likes because it pulls together data from everywhere so it can predict the future and knows what's going to happen. So basically, like run probability tests of, oh, if I let this thing happen, then XYZ will happen in the long term and so on. So it lets things like the Borg attacks happen and the Zindi attack happen in the TV show. But it's more the Borg would be aware of it because they'd absorbed Federation technology. Ah, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't because the AI is so incredibly clever, right, that the way it's hidden is so secret and everything that no one has ever noticed it. Not even the Borg. Who Not gave, even who the Borg. Who gave life to Vidra. Because... They said you know. That's a different story. 
One time I'll tell you about this tournament, Vija 2 appeared, which ran on broadband. I'm not even making that up. Anyway, so the point is, it's all about stopping Section 31. Right. And the, he sort of succeeds, but not really. Because what happens is that Section 31, they, their spaceship blows, blows up at the end. And everyone's like, oh, oh, they've gone away. But then, hang on, there's some stuff about how they'll come back. Let me try, let me try and find it. Oh, I can't find it now. But anyway, there's, there's a bit where, like, oh, um, the people may be dead, but the structure is still there. And when the time is right, it'll be reactivated, which fits in with the 24th century novels because you know that what they're referencing is a super secret AI, which even the people in this book don't know exists. So, how many people listening to this just want to run out now and pick up a Star Trek book? It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fantastic does anyone else feel like they've just had a, a had their head sledgehammered with information see the problem is I'm a big fan of Edinburgh's li- library services and they did me good because they used to get each month's novel in because use your local libraries because they do ask to get new books in more often than you would think you so just ask you just ask and so they get and then they stopped getting them in so they had to go to Black Girls the bookshop right but then they stopped getting them in so now I have to get them from the internet and pre-order do you not just think that's a sign that perhaps the current editorial framework is perhaps alienating readers but it's, because a library is going to stop getting them in because the demand budget and demand they have slightly different kinds but Blackwells would stop getting them in because they've stopped selling to everyone bar you Blackwells is in a, a here, here's a bit of real wording. Rathless in Edinburgh, as he's mentioned, which is, if you're not aware, it's Scotland's capital city. So it's, a, so it's a wee bit big. And it also tends to service areas around it, such as where I hail from, which is uh, Funfermolino, the Riviera of Fife, and isn't so well served for th- things such as this. So you would go through. If in that city that's covering a large section of the east of Scotland, you've got one person willing to fall on the literary grenade that is the monthly Star Trek book, suggests that perhaps course corrections in order to maybe appeal to look I like to stay informed I like to know what's happening in Star Trek as do I that's and, why and, I have you and here's the thing people were saying to me ah you have to stop now Ralph because they're bringing Star Trek back to TV and I was like I'm, I'm cock a hoop that they're bringing Star, uh, Star Trek back to TV I'm very excited by this but because they've set it 10 years before the original series it doesn't really interfere with the ongoing narratives of the books so they were able just to play on this before into a, what we can all uh, controlled tailspin to because unlike the, unlike the Star Wars Expanded Universe you don't have to reboot it all to fit the yeah. new canon anyway so next month uh, Star Trek read, uh, read Star Trek will be about um, Desperate Hours by David Mack well David Mack did the good one but he did also, also apparently according to Ralph deliver uh, all, no matter how good a writer is they always have a turd in them apparently he recently delivered said turd that was the one that revealed the secret AI behind everything that ever happened that ran Section 31 and Starfleet and the Federation and the Klingons and the Vulcans and the Tellarites and every planet and the Alpha and Beta squadrons. So basically, kids, go and buy Star Trek books. They're great. Have a wee moment here. Need a wee break. I don't know about you, but I'm tired. Have I read Shakespeare, you know. I don't just read Star Trek. There are Shakespeare books on site here. They, they do actually get read. I'm not one of those people that goes, ho, ho, ho. I must acquire the complete works of Shakespeare so I can put it on my shelf and look like a ponce. No, I can't claim I've read every single page of words, but I do thumb through them when I see a play to check certain passages or to read the introductions. Yeah. It's all good. Well, uh, I think we need to uh, need a, a wee light break after that. So we're gonna we're gonna save another literary gem for a little bit later. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about well, let's have a, actually Star Trek Discovery. Let's have a little couple of moments on that. Let's talk about Star Trek Discovery. Uh, as Ralph has Netflix, I popped across yesterday and we watched it. Hot right. take. Yeah. I like the ideas. I 
think the execution's been a little bit flawed in terms of how it's come across. Yes. Um, uh, let's preface, if you want, this will be spoilers ahead. Spoilers so, ahead. Spoilers ahead. So move forward about five minutes and you'll be fine. Um, the thing with Star Trek on television, as you may have guessed by now, I'm a die-to-the-will hardcore Star Trek fanboy. I think you mean enthusiast. A Star Trek enthusiast, I think you're fine. Uh, but even I, even I, uh, by the time it went off the air in 2005, really felt it needed a rest. And I do maintain that every long-running series does actually need a rest from time to time, because there were lots of very, very talented people working on the Star Trek shows, but by that point... They'd and, Manny, to, and Manny Cole. And, and Manny Cole. Uh, but they'd popped to rough, I think off the top of my head, about 18, 18, yeah, 18 seasons worth of television. And at one point, we're producing 50 episodes a year plus feature films, and people get tired. There's only so long we can do that. And even Enterprise, I still haven't watched every episode of it. It just wasn't doing it for me. So when it was cancelled, actually, I wasn't one of those annoying people on the internet who wants things to fail or wants things I like to be bad and go away. I was just like, you know what? I would have liked to plan off we're going to rest it for a while and then bring it back. They did bring it back indeed, actually, quite relatively quickly because in 2009 it was a, uh, it was a new Star Trek film which was actually shot in 2017 in early 2018. So very, very quickly, um, Star Trek was back. But for people like me, the new films are really what I want because they're set in an alternate timeline. And the reason why they're not particularly for me is the thing about Star Trek is you've had over 700 episodes and at that point 10 films. And part of the appeal and the fun is it's all roughly the same universe. Uh, unlike Transformers, which is the thing that we both are massive enthusiasts of as well, is that has never had a whole cohesive narrative. It has always had yeah. this chunk here is, a, is the Transformers, this chunk here is the Transformers. Yeah. Pick what you like. Yeah. And with this with Star Trek, some of it's retrospective because the original series was literally made up from week to week. And particularly if you watch the first season, who Kirk's bosses are changes. There's like several different agencies that are meant to be there. But generally speaking, it's all meant to be the same. So part of the appeal was that. So... I've, I've, 12 years have passed and I think a bit like when Doctor Who went off television enough time has passed things have moved on it feels like the time is right to bring Star Trek back because people like myself are going I could really use a new show now so right away they got me in the good books by saying it's going to be set in what they now call the prime timeline or the civilians would call it Star Trek <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so being continuity um, then there was perhaps some slight oh dear moments when they said we're making other people Yes, I'm loath to give prequels much attention because, for example, we've again we are Star Wars enthusiasts as well. This is true. We're enthusiastic about a lot of things. Yeah, it's true. Uh, however, of all the films that've been announced and discussed, the Han Solo film is the one that I have zero love for, purely because I don't need to see Han Solo before he was in Star Wars because the character yeah. he's not an appealing character. He could be part of an ensemble film, absolutely, but there's a sailing on it's the adventures of young Hansel. It's like the young Indiana Jones Chronicles. We don't need to see them before that their characters we yeah. get. But who knows, it might turn out to be a good film, but my interest isn't there. Yeah. Um, I just put it upon it, but hopefully it'll come out and it'll be good and I'll quite happily eat more. Um, but yeah, so we started, so the behind the discovery was they said it's going to be 10 years before um, the original series, 1960s show. So 23rd century and about 2256. I think we'll find. It was on a Sunday. It was on a Sunday. Um, and lo and behold, there was much gnashing and wailing of teeth when inevitably, as we start to see production photographs and then as the publicity ramped up, because uh, it was delayed a couple of times, so there was quite a long gap between the announcement of we're making a show and the actual show uh, coming out, is that um, your imagination is required to make it fit. Now, 
I can think of a dozen ways off the top of my head as to how I could easily make this fit in my head with original. But really, at the end of the day, it shouldn't really matter. If it looks a bit different, fine. And it's going to feel different because the TV show is made 50 years later. It's more the case of, does it have the rough spirit of the period of the time I sent it in? And you can let the kind of visual differences, you know, just, just go away. So it was eventually launched uh, on, on CBS All Access in America, on the Space Channel in Canada, and Netflix everywhere else. What's that about? It's about, at this point in time, it's about a random ship that's on the fringes of Federation space that comes into contact with the long, the long disappeared Klingons who haven't been seen in a century by this point. Yes. So basically what it implies is that after the events of the Enterprise TV show, to which this is a sequel, as well as a prequel to the original series, uh, the Klingons all went away and hid in the hole or something. Fra- the, the thing is it seems to have fractured we kind of get the thing the backstory about Klingon houses and they're not united and all that so we kind of Star Trek Discovery we haven't seen the Discovery yet not yet we don't see it at the end of episode, episode 1 2, two no, either no. And see it, it feels like Star Trek it did feel very much like they've kind of captured the mood that they were going for which is they're trying to bridge somewhere between Enterprise and the original series yeah. fortunate problem they have is in the first two episodes there are two standout characters who could catch your eye. Absolutely. One of them does not survive episode two. I'm not speaking of Michelle Yeoh, who I thought was actually quite flat in this. I'm actually speaking of the main Klingon guy, Takuma the Unforgettable, as he who becomes known. indeed forgettable, because at no point in the later show does, does War for somebody go, Hey, see Takuma, the Unforgettable? What a guy! I know. He was great. He was a ledge. Uh, but he's genuinely great in terms of there's a presence about him yeah. even under the prosthetics yeah. he's holding the screen so he's, he's the main Klingon character so basically he's, he's trying to unite the separate houses of the Klingon Empire to basically get their sort of destiny and sense of race back and purpose and basically we should just go and get Starfleet because rah, they're on their way it's, um, the, it's the Pat Mills take on humanity is that the only way they'll unite if there's a common enemy to fight against yes. and he just spun around so, like we need the Federation as the bad that guy that in itself is a wonderful continuity and also dramatically a good idea yep. um, where it falls down slightly unfortunately is uh, to redesign the Klingons and to be honest fine because you have to because if you make them look like the Klingons of the 1960s episode it'd be very unfortunate because while Star Trek in many respects was progressive for its time in other respects it also is of its time and when you go back and you look at the Klingons they're a wee bit racially insensitive shall we say just a tad so that has to be kind of done uh, you obviously can't go back to what we've seen from Next Generation all that because it is the stick to beat Star Trek quite commonly and rightly so is how do you make an alien slap some cack on their forehead it so, was very much a makeup design choice it was um, so they've got this really good idea and it is a good idea and I uh, I think it was worth trying, which is we're going to do all the Klingon scenes, except when they're speaking to the Starfleet, are going to be in Klingon. So they're all speaking in their own language, and you've got subtitles, and you've got a brilliant idea, I can see it working. When it unfortunately falls down is that, as part of the redesign, I think the redesign generally looks fine, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that opposed to it um, at all. I can see why it's not to everyone's cup of tea, to be fair, but I, it's, it's fine I, for me. I like the facial redesign, it's the yeah. costume design that doesn't make it work. They are spiky dresses. They look a kind of... If you've seen the Draconians in Doctor Who, they kind of do give... When they're assembled together, mm-hmm. there was a Draconian vibe about them. Yes, and once you see the spiky dresses, you can't unsee it. But basically, they, they've done something with the prosthetics around about the mouth, so I, don't, I can't quite make, make it if it's the teeth that they've put in or something around it, but basically... They can't talk like this. You have to talk like that. 
when they're doing the Klingon and that becomes very tedious very quickly and it's one of those ones when again you kind of wish somebody ate somebody in post-production with a way that doesn't quite work. We'll modify that for future episodes. So let's just do ADR and get the actors in again and just have them talk over it yeah. normally. Because what you have to think with Star Trek is, yes, people like me are going to watch it anyway. We are. Absolutely. But you're putting it on subscription services. So you're trying to get basically a general audience to watch it. Because if you just get Star Trek fans watching it, your show won't last long. Because as much as I love it, Star Trek really hasn't been in the mainstream, arguably, since the mid-90s. And if there were enough people who love Star Trek as in the fans it wouldn't have been off the air for 12 years so yeah. you have to reach out to new people and I got a real sinking feeling at the start of episode 1 where you've just got lots of people going oh, 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 about the thing and the ding-dangs and the wing-dong and the woo-bangs and you know but what. as I say the, the, Takuma pull, managed to pull off the, the actor playing who's uh, I should look up but I'm being lazy uh, has a bit of a presence about him and manages to make those scenes work unfortunately the character is now dead He's the martyr to unite the Klingons, yeah. uh, which is kind of how it works. Which is kind of what the character wanted all along anyway, yeah. you could tell. And to be fair, it's actually big to the story. Yeah. Uh, the other actor is Doug Jones, as the... Uh, coward, not even cowardly, just an alien who's basically been raised to be prey livestock, but can sense death. He's genuinely engaging. And the, the one character was... And, of course, the lesser light... Ensign Robot Face. Ensign Robot Face. We don't know if Ensign Robot Face was a male or a female or, or an it has a name or whatever. It just, I like Ensign Robot Face. Because it's, it's got a ridiculous giant head. Ridiculous giant robot head. Which just looks... It was a thing of joy. It was a thing, thing of joy. And even better is at one point the ship goes to red alert. So big red alert signs appear on his face. Yeah. It's great. I think uh, it got one line which yeah. was something like, Impossible! Yeah. <laughs> and it looked like possibly might have died. Yeah, but we hope, we hope Resident Robot Face returns. Now, you can sense there might be a slight difficulty here because we're not talking about the main characters. Okay, so the, the two lead characters in it start off in the pre-credits. You've got the captain of the ship, who played by Michelle Yeoh, who, as I've said... Uh, who I usually really find to be quite a good actor. Felt just a very flat delivery. Yeah, I was quite surprised because I was quite excited to hear she was going to be in it because I thought, oh, she's really good. Yeah. And even when the film's not good, she's usually puts in a good turn. And I, I, just, I don't know if it was the writing, I don't know what went wrong, but for some reason it just... It left me cold. Also, there was the slight error as well, I think, where she's listed in the credits for episode one as special guest star, so you know she's going to die. Yes. Uh, then you've got the lead uh, playing Michael Burnham. Or Michael Burnham, Burnham yeah. Michael Burnham. Uh, First officer. Unnecessarily convoluted backstory involving Claire. The actress herself is... convoluted background. Actress is fine. But the character, she's, because she's basically human that's been bred to, uh, brought up on Vulcan, you're getting that thawing of the character as it goes along. And it does work, to be fair, but her backstory gets in the way of the execution of it. Yes, because the whole idea is that... Um... No one's seen Klingons, so when she encounters one and kills them, and it's like, no, not everyone questions it. It's like, yeah. you're projecting on it. A little bit more to info dump, but let's see, she's, she's actually good, but just the character has... But hopefully, yeah. now we've got I mean, past what, that. What they're kind of going for, which again is actually a good idea, because at this point, this is the seventh Star Trek television show, and they have also made over 700 episodes across the previous six. So you have to do something different by this point. So what they went is, instead of the main character being the captain, we're going to make it somebody in Lower Decks. Uh, she was a first officer, she's not a first officer anymore, uh, so who knows if she's busted back to Cadet or something, we'll, we'll find out. But basically, the main character is not a captain, and she makes a mistake which contributes towards a war start and basically mutinies against her captain. Now, that's a good idea. Yeah. I can get behind that. The way it's done, 
unfortunately, makes her out to be a bit of an idiot because because she's meant to be a first officer, you're told repeatedly, and you even get a flashback, she's been on this ship for seven years. So she's not she's not green, she's not new, and I think it reads something like sort of like a kind of like a new first contact with the Klingons, and she just makes a mistake and he or misinterprets something and it's accidental and she's regretful of it and this gets busted down or put in prison and has to fight back up. A bit even a bit like what they were going for with Tom Paris and Voyager, but yeah. didn't quite because they, they couldn't make him Nicholas Locarno anyway yeah because that was a character that started that particular show in jail because he'd caused the death of a, a fellow officer during a, a training mission that went wrong so the same idea but fortunately the way the character is written she just comes across as very stupid very unlikable and a bit of a word that rhymes with wick um, so I found I didn't really care what happened to her which is a problem because you're supposed to be invested in her conflict and perhaps even feel sympathy that she's done that because it's the whole classic thing of of Star Trek of we try and be better than what we are Yeah. so if you're going to make a contemporary as much as I love the next generation and well uh, completely died away with next generation there is a valid criticism of it which we still apply to television today which is if all your main characters are perfect where's the conflict and why yeah. would viewers want to tune in so they do that and uh, so so she goes to space jail then episode 2 because she mutinies against the captain basically says we should attack first and um, all that kind of business uh, so she goes to a super secret court martial room which hilariously either because the budget's run out or um, they're trying to go for some atmosphere it's going to be complete darkness complete with a dry ice machine in the yeah. background and she's sentenced to space jail the production's fantastic yeah. it's, it's a, it looks expensive it does not look like a cheapy show that's been just bummed out for streaming there's a couple of unfortunate shot choices just because of the way they staged the battle yeah. that they need to cut away a little bit earlier because they looked a bit ridiculous yes. when they've got all the ships in the distance and they start exchanging fire and it just looks like a bit of a computer game I can see um, what they were going for but I need to cut away a bit quickly yeah, yeah. but this sounds on the Jewish, but it was overall enjoyable and I can see where they're going and there's promise there so again it's the, it's the execution rather than the tone so hopefully pilot episodes of a Star Trek generally aren't the best anyway and I think also I felt particularly wrong footed in the first episode because I thought I was getting episodes 1 and 2 of Star Trek Discovery yeah. when in fact what you're getting is what was it, what looks like at some point a TV movie that was split in two which is actually a prologue to the series because the start of the show isn't in it yet Captain Discovery's not in it and most of the main characters haven't appeared yeah so it doesn't really start till episode three. It was a job before yeah, it was. So as I said, I, it wasn't horrible. It's not a feeling of I'll watch episode three because it's called Star Trek. It's my feeling of I'll say because I just hope they write the Michael Burnham character a wee bit better. Yeah, that's all I look for. But yes, and, cool. and for context, I'm rewatching kind of the far point this week from TNG because yeah. it was the 35th anniversary of the show. Actually, not as bad as I remembered it being. Funnily enough, I don't I don't remember it being great the first time I watched it, and that was a show where I kept watching it because it was called Star Trek until it got good, but. I don't know, maybe it's because it's the first time I watched it in the, the remastered HD format, but uh, on some really clunky stuff we queue at the start, I was like, this is actually quite good. <laughs> so, so, there you go. I remember really enjoying it back in the day when I first watched it on VHS before it aired on TV. Cause yes, because for the UK, we didn't get Star Trek Next Generation until 1990, three years later. Yep, but the VHSs were out before then. Of the first season. Well, sticking with. Much more friendly to, to new, new a new audience than the Star Trek book that Ralph inflicted on us briefly. So I think it's time to move on to our final item, which is a regular feature. The Uncanny, Uncanny Oxfam. Uncanny Oxfam, what does that mean? Basically, if you're a resident of Edinburgh, you'll know that the Oxfam shops in Stockbridge and on Nicholson Street Indeed. generally have a wide range of comics getting put there because people seek to get rid of their collections and can't be bothered either eBaying them or just skipping them. So yeah. goes to charity. So you can regularly go in there and pick up some bargains and... 
also sometimes just some random comics for the hell of it. What is so the idea is and this exciting regular feature is that we will visit Oxfam and we will try and find a random comic that perhaps has not had the spotlight it deserves or perhaps has had before yeah so what is our random comic that we have today so we, we've got one uh, it's, it's one from uh, Marvel it's uh, volume 1 number 28 from July 1982 of Namor the Submariner who is Namor the Submariner so according to the little recappy bit you get at the top of Marvel okay. Comics yes sign of an air breathing father and a water breathing mother gifted with superhuman strength and the power of flight the avenging son of Atlantis has battled for and against humanity since World War 3 no Two, with an exclamation mark. Very poor font choice, Marvel. Now, the wealth of the Eternal Seas at his command, he has set up a new campaign of conquest against the enemies of the environment itself. Stan Lee presents Namor, the Submariner. Wow, that sounds exciting. It does. Uh, this is back when the, when comics cost uh, how much? $1.25 US, £1.50 Canada, and 85 pence in the UK. 85 pence. Wow. So, so Neymar. So Neymar had been around since uh, Fantastic Four issue one. No, he wasn't Fantastic Four issue one. I'm talking nonsense. He's been around since the nineteen thirties. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I've failed. Yes. Life. Uh, Neymar is one of, is Marvel's first mutant. Yes, as it's on the tagline, Marvel's first and mightiest mutant. Yes, he's a mutant. Please buy him because he's not quite X Men. But go on, mutant books sell. Yes, and the nineties were X Men. Were the X books were kings. Well, 80s and 90s to be fair yes. so, so you've been around since what year again? since 1940 since 1940 of course I was testing you uh, Bill Everett was his yes, player yes that's correct so, but, who, but what is it so basically he is an underwater chap who rules the city of Atlantis well no he's effectively either rules Atlantis has been exiled from it or rules it or has been exiled he kind of flip <laughs> basically him and Aquaman have the same basically the same types of issues yes Basically, they're either meant to be in charge of his undersea kingdom or they're an enemy of their people. Now, in uh, terms of uh, pop culture, Namor has yet to appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't think he's been in any of the TV shows yet. Uh, no. no not so, really, then you have to go back to the 60s cartoon. 90s Fantastic Four cartoon as well. And the, 2000, the, uh, the French 2002 one, the Fantastic Four one, he's in that as well. Okay. Uh, Namor has a bit of a, charitably, a bit of a ridiculous look. He basically looks not unsimilar to Spock, but with a higher hairline, mm-hmm. like Black Adam from uh, yeah. Cat Marvel. Uh, wears a pair of green swimming trunks mm-hmm. and has wings on his ankles. Even as a kid, I never understood the wings. They the help ankles. him fly. I know, but I just used to think if you're on your ankles, you'll just because he always like flies if he's like Superman with his yeah. hands out. So I always just thought you would just tip over. Yeah, but anyway, maybe that's where we went wrong. When, when man was trying to learn how to fly or like strapping stuff to our backs maybe we should have just done them on our feet and that would work I think there'll be a lot of fatalities with that if you want to go to the front of this field. so this is his uh, 90s uh, revival how long as an ongoing concern I, I think about 40 issues which this, at the time was quite a short running series if you think about it because you know like like these days like comic a lot of Marvel comics are lucky if they get to issue 12 yeah this was uh, relaunched by a uh, long time uh, Fantastic Four uh, writer artist uh, John Byrne once a very talented uh, very vital comic creator now the inflictor of horrific Star Trek photo comics 
and unpleasant opinions. A man who has marginalised himself to the point of irrelevance in modern comics. Bit of a shame. Uh, yes, for when he was on form, uh, Dark Phoenix Saga with X-Men, his FF run. Half a flight. His Superman reboot. And then, basically, as of the 90s, even the She-Hulk run was quite fun. Yeah, it wasn't bad. Yeah. So, Neymar. So, he's not actually writing and drawing all of this which he did the early part of the run he's only actually contributed the story in this script has been done by Joey Cavalieri who was uh, known most comic readers will know him as the editor of the 2099 line for Marvel Mm -hmm. uh, who basically stewarded that particular successful old subverse until Marvel sacked him and then all the creators walked out en masse pencils by Jay Lee uh, inks by Jeff Albrecht letters by Michael Higgins who a letterer and also writes very bad Excalibur graphic novels best not talk about that it makes me angry Colours by Glynis Oliver uh, edited by Terry Kavanagh who was the Excalibur editor mm-hmm. and Tom DeFalco's editor-in-chief this time on the cover you've got a very high contrast back and white uh, shot also black background of Namor back to back with one of my favourite characters from Marvel uh, Iron Fist and it's got Fist of Fury this does not happen in the comic no neither neither team up because this is the point where Namor has a beard and is amnesiac that's right which is another one of the stock Neymar plots. Yes. Basically, he's either ruling Atlantis to pose for Atlantis, amnesiac, not amnesiac. Teaming up with Doctor Doom. Or teaming up with Doctor Doom. Teaming up with Doctor Doom, yeah. Yeah, so this is basically the back. The John Byrne brought back Iron Fist in this this book. Because he was dead at the time. He was. I always liked Iron Fist. He was cool. Uh, I've not seen his Netflix series, so people, please don't tell me how pissy is that. I've seen, I've not I've seen the that, comments. Either. Everyone says he's a bit of a twat. Fair enough. But in the comics, I always liked him. Here's the, just, the splash page. It's got him doing a flying kick, Iron Fist, and I should say, and it's got some uh, wonderful narration captions. What are the narration captions? He's tough. He's mean. He's Daniel Rand, known to the world as Iron Fist. His anger and bravado aren't just for show. He may be the most defiant man on the planet. How defiant? Once death himself touched Daniel to drag him to his dark domain, Daniel refused to go. Like we said, he's tough. He's mean. He's back. Then it leads into the issue's story title, Still Alive and Well. So it's basically Iron Fist doing a, a sort of training montage in some kind of a full danger room style thing where it's being watched by a long-time uh, friends, Colleen Wing, and I believe it's Misty Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really seen much of the bionic hand, though, but she's wearing, a glove. She is wearing a glove, though, so it could be concealing it. But he's basically using the power of his Iron Fist and battering stuff about. Uh, Namor's gone missing. Namorita, his niece... I want to say cousin cousin that's ah, one thing uh, she's been taking over Namor's company Oracle who are the ones that are trying to do environmental work she's searching for him meanwhile some chap has basically made Namor amnesiac apparently he's called Master Khan now he has a good opening monologue as well he, he does she's got Namorita she's been in some kind of fight fight the looks things and been by Namor he's scalped her to recap of the previous issue because mm-hmm. he's, he's not himself to snow because he's amnesiac we might yeah. mention but then it, it cuts to ha 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 I have most certainly as you put it screwed up his head my dear and a great deal more tinkering merely with Namor's memory would not be worthy of the arcane talents of Master Khan if you had slightly more wit than the halibut you resemble you would recognise the elegance of the enchantment Namor suffers not only is he stricken with a loss of memory but should he contact with, come into contact with anyone or anything that might trigger said memory's return he must flee by any means necessary and should that include deadly force against the people and the things he loves and so much the better <laughs> yeah, I like what he is talking to himself isn't he he does look like Mr Sinister Master yes, Khan as in he's got that he's got the he basically looks like Namor with a goatee mm. and peely white skin and some horrible earrings I see what they did there 
So Namor's currently embroiled with some kind of environmental protesters of which he's been lured into doing some violent acts because they're trying to do some shenanigans because one of the people that's involved isn't actually an environmentalist but is working for Oracle Namor's company or someone within it who looks like a douchebag. It's it's just pish. I'm, I'm sorry, Gav. Uh, and I'll take a moment out here to shout out to Gav Spence, friend of the friend of the show and friend of Namor. That's true. It's, it's not very good, mate. Yeah, there was. This is during that kind of early '90s phase where uh, a lot of comics tried to be right on with environmental issues and try and sort of educate their readers and show that uh, pollution was just as bad as Doctor Doom and stuff like that. And you know what? It's, it's well intentioned, but it often comes across quite cat-handed. Um, in the main case probably being Captain Planet and the Planeteers we you call that one that was a very special uh, series during that time yeah. so during this uh, part of our subplot was basically trying to fight um, evil people who are going to like destroy the environment and uh, the people who are against it are referred to as tree huggers and so on and they must be beaten up by the evil people who want to pollute the earth and pollute the sky as I said it reads very simplistically now but uh, you know what it's well intentioned and it's forgotten as well that this is the time in which your main readers of comics were what we call children well like charitably <laughs> 1992 Two. might have been 15 or what was it 14-15 yeah but it's back when comics were generally aimed at everyone and the way they worked was they got you when you were a kid and then you would go up and out of comics and then the readers would be replaced by new children. No, I'd have been 12. There uh, you go. So you're still a child. Oh, no, no. No, let's see. No, no, no 15. I'd have been 15. 15. Just turned 15. Okay. So, yeah, still a child, to be fair. Yeah, so... It's Jay Lee uh, of that year now not the polished person that we've seen now but you can kind of see where the roots of his style it's one of these things that every every comic should always be it could potentially be someone's first issue is a mantra that a lot of people and to be fair it does do that it does tell you who Namor is who the villain is who Iron Fist is through a recap but the problem is there's not really much of Namor to attract you to come back to the character because you're in mid-story where the lead's an amnesiac so it's a tough sell and Iron Fist just in a training room looks badass but that's really it and then he's kind of out of it Yes. So it wouldn't really one that if I'd stumbled across it went, oh, hold me back for the next issue. So you're not going to go and track down the latest uh, exciting issue of Namor that follows on? Uh, the honest answer I'd like to say no, but it does have Jay Lee Yacht and Iron Fist, so has it there's every been, chance. Has it ever been put in no, Namor's 90 stuff's so. been, but no. again, because John Byrne is not on good terms with Marvel, if you look at it in terms of it, things like X Men The Hidden Years, yeah. that only got. I think one trade but it's done by the Panini Pocket Books yes because I read some of it there it's been done all of it's yeah. been done by Panini Pocket Books but if you look at it, a lot of Burns' work it's only the sort of the stuff they have to reprint because only She-Hulk's only just now getting a, a, a print a, yeah, an essential there, there were trades of all his FF run yeah but that's yeah. But even now that's kind of been off a flight it was done but it's kind of I think it's all the stuff that you would kind of realistically have to put through because he's not on good terms with Marvel and hasn't been for a number of years since the cancellation of X-Men Hidden Years which he rags on at length about how it was a successful book they killed. I was like, yeah, it was selling a lot, but it wasn't very good. Well, that's it was a prequel anyway. It was they were shoehorning <laughs> in what happened between when they started doing X Men reprints up to giant sized X Men. Nobody cares. Mm. Yeah, you introduced Storm in the first issue because they were back. The yeah. young Storm as a pickpocket. It was just tedious continuity porn, which is an unfortunate feeling that he fell into. But now he's, which is pretty much what he's doing now with the Star Trek photo. Photo comics. Even I only read them in the library. They're really bad. Yeah, not, not that great. He, he's four, 
it's, like it's making for me a photo comics like basically what we would do as kids when cutting up comics and make your own collages and pictures but they're so half half arsed cat handed random bits of images stricken into the other panels I could rant about it at length I'll just stick with the novels I'll just stick with your uh, recaps of the novels for the most part did and Star Trek on Netflix so that's Namor the Submariner 28 there's not it's not a great comic we don't advise it's, to go back in time and find it no or even go in the back of your shops is it indicative of Marvel at the time yeah it is because this is this is at the time when they just started expanding the lines massively just at the start of it this is in that we're in full flight for gimmick covers so 92 July Jim Lee is still on X-Men just so we're just about to come up to Executioner's Song Jay Lee's not going on this book for much longer because he jumped ship to X Factor for the issues for Executioner's Song well done and he does some stuff for Image as well he does Wildcats trilogy and his own stuff Hellshock and then he's mm-hmm. a bigger name uh, and a much more polished artist these days yes. and again did the G.I. Joe Transformers uh, World War 2 with <coughs> Nazis but we can't call them Nazis uh, stuff yes from Dreamwave very good I recommend the Black and White Digest if you can find it so well done for making it this far so we will pick it up next week no next week I hope not I don't have time to do this um, on our next episode uh, we'll be looking at a, a fine cinematic outing that's right American Ninja 2 The Confrontation a lost classic hitherto not commented upon enough on the internet yeah so come back next episode for Stardub 2 The, the Confrontation, confrontation. Ha, 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 ha.